Okay, chapter 10 of the book of Revelation. Chapter 10. You know, as, as a pastor, when you produce a sermon and you try to find a way to illustrate what you're teaching, sometimes it's, it takes a little work, a little uh, effort to create some way to illustrate that would make a point. And, and um, we're studying the tribulation. And I don't have to make a point at this moment. Uh, I'm just thinking that, you know, if the world's population of vegetation is destroyed like we read about in one of these judgments, how such a thing might not seem like it could affect much, but think of all the things affected without vegetation. Think of all the shortages on toilet paper and such. <laughs> it's incredible. The things that you would not think are an issue are an issue today. Try putting your, well, you, you could use your imagination and try to put yourself in a spot like that. And what we're going through today is tiny, tiny, tiny compared to what we're reading about that is going to happen and add to another element of it take a world experiencing these kind of things without the influence of the church believers are removed and the holy spirit's restraining power has been lifted and i don't know about you but i don't want to see a world like that without the influence of anything good coming from people who want to do good. Uh, there will be believers down here, but uh, I think that will be a smaller number than what we might think in that regard. And I just can't imagine a world without the influence of good in a difficult time. This is what we're reading here, and it's not easy to read these chapters, I know. We're in chapter number 10. Uh, we are moving through. There's 22 chapters. I said one chapter each week, and I'm going to hold to that. Um, we're going to do 10 this week and 11 next week. And then that pause, I promised, is coming for a Easter series. So we're going to have several weeks uh, talking about the resurrection of Christ. I love that theme. And then after Easter, we come back to chapter 12 and keep going. So it's halftime. It's coming up on halftime. And so... With that, we're in chapter number 10 today. Follow with me as I read. I'm going to emphasize verse number 9. I always tell you which one is kind of the center theme for the chapter. And uh, just to put you in perspective here, chapter number 10 is a pause again before the seventh judgment is sounded. Six judgments are done. Number seven is about to be sounded. It's a trumpet judgment. And there's a pause. Chapter 10 and 11 will fill in what's happening during this pause. So follow with me as I read. In chapter 10, verse 1, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was under his feet, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was opened, and he placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. 
And the seven, when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up those things which the seven peals of thunder had spoken. Do not write them. Then the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven I heard again, speaking to me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, for it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many things and nations and tongues and kings. Boy, does this get our curiosity going. Heavenly Father, help us with it today. As we have this text open in front of us, help us to grasp from it the things we need to know, the things that draw us again in our attention to you. For that is the whole theme of this book. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, and it's for us to know. So help us with it today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Obviously, a lot of judgments going on. There are the judgments that we saw in chapter number 9. There were two of those. The judgments we saw in chapter number 8. There was four of those. That's six of the trumpet judgments. The seventh one is about to sound. That will be in the next chapter. We've already seen in the trumpet judgments that the earth was smitten in such a way that it says a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. And that's a terrible scene. Chapter 8, verse 7. Now we start to feel what we mean by that could be an economic disaster. It could be a terrible disaster to experience such things. The sea is smitten. Chapter 8, verse 8 and 9, that a third of the sea became blood. A third of the sea creatures died. A third of the ships were destroyed. In chapter 8, verse 10 and 11, the fresh water was smitten as well. The rivers the springs of water, a third of them, were all affected. They were so bitter that men died from it. The fourth judgment was chapter 8, verse 12. The heavens were smitten. A third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the light was taken away. In chapter 9, the fifth trumpet sounded. And it was a locust sting that affected the mankind for five months, it said. The torment of the, lo- of the locust steam, that sting. They did not uh, touch the vegetation, but they did touch man. And we read about that in chapter 9, 1 through 5 last week. And it was a horrific concept. And then following that, these people are wanting to die and they can't. And the sixth judge, judge, judgment is given in chapter 9, 13. 
through 19, and it gets worse. It speaks of angels being uh, unleashed on mankind with the purpose of destroying them. And I believe these are angelic beings, and I think they are God's angels, and it's one-third of the world's population is killed by an angelic army. And that's incredible to imagine. A third of mankind. That's, by this time, we have reached chapter 10. About a fourth of the world, or a half of the world's population is killed at this point. That's only, folks, about three and a half years in to the tribulation period. There is references in the Gospels that if this day was not cut short, no one would survive. Half the world's population in less than three years or four years. That's just an incredible concept to read. And so we read that. We read about those plagues. We learned something very important from chapter 9, verse 20, and also in verse number 21. That same phrase is given twice. They did not repent. They did not repent. I suggest to you that that's the nature of man anyway. Unbelievers act like unbelievers. And unless the Lord changes the heart, judgment is not going to be the thing that triggers it. Judgment is poured out on them, and they did not repent. It drove them deeper and deeper into it. Only Jesus can save you, not judgment. And that's the whole point of this passage. To me, as I'm going through this, I'm saying, what, what, what am I going to glean here that comes away with that which is encouraging my heart? And I say, thank you, Lord, for saving my life. When I read these things, and they're real, and they're coming, I thank the Lord that He has saved me. So here we go into chapter number 10. Chapter number 10. It's almost this way, and I, I'm using a touch of imagination here. Six angels standing there before the throne, that's the picture. These six angels, seven angels standing there with their trumpets. And one by one, they raise it up and blow out that trumpet judgment, and we saw what happened. And then the second one would pick up his trumpet, and he'd blow out that trumpet judgment, and then we saw what happened. And his third, fourth, fifth, the sixth one does it. The seventh one, I, here's my imagination for a minute. He, he starts it, he's bringing it up to his lips, and somebody says, wait a minute. Hold on for a second. You almost see that. And, and to me, I, I don't know, I just use my imagination. Maybe it was the father says, hang on, I want to say something first. Seventh judgment's about to sound. And rather than sound, we have chapter number 10. We have chapter number 10. The strong angel appears, it says. The strong angel. Another one. We've got angels all over the place here. But there, this one is coming down out of heaven, it says. He's clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. I'm going to call him the colorful angel. All right? He's pretty, it's pretty interesting how this one is described. His face was like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. He had in his hand a little book. What's curious is, we never really know what's in that book. John eats it. John, at least we eat it first, then eat it. Tell us what's in the book. He doesn't tell us what's in the book. This, this angel has this little book in his hand, it says. 
Now, the angel must be pretty large, too. He's got one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. There's a lot, there's a lot of, of thoughts that go into those, and we're not going to do that right now. You're studying this on the side or reading it, too. You can look into some of these things. There's a lot of curiosity here as to what this is and why it's happening. But we do notice that this incredibly large, colorful angel cries out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. You got the idea of big, right? Big voice. And when he cried out, there were seven peals of thunder. Here you on the horizon, just rattling off in response to what he said. And apparently, those said something too. Whatever he said, they responded to it. And it had to have been very impressive. John says, I've got to write this down. And he gets his pen out and he starts to do this. And you see exactly what happens, which is curiosity to me. He says in verse 4, When those seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write it down. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Paraphrase, Don't. Stop. Don't write down what you just heard. Seal it up. Leave it alone. Don't write what was just said. Are you curious what it was? Yes, we are, but I can't tell you. I don't know. I have no idea. There's nothing here that a pastor could dig out of the words to say, Aha! There's no way to know what that was. John didn't record it for us because he was told not to. Curiosity is huge right now. A lot of things are happening here. What is that? Some people even speculate, who is this? Who's this angel standing here? Some people say, well, that's Jesus. Some people say, no, that's Michael the archangel. And they try to pin a name on him and say who it is. Well, I'll tell you this much. It's not Jesus. Because the only time Jesus ever appears as an angel, like the angel of the Lord, is in the Old Testament. After his birth, he never appeared again as an angel. So that, that was a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Christ. But when he took on flesh, that's the way he stayed. He's in glorified flesh now. But this angel is different. It's an angel. A big and colorful angel. I don't think it's Jesus. And I'm not sure it's Michael. I do not know. I cannot say. I cannot say what's in the book. I cannot say what John had to heard, had heard. And I don't know what John wrote. Boy, I'm helping you a lot this morning, aren't I? I there's a lot of things here. That leads us to, to wonder, what is happening here? He had a little book, Contents Unknown. Some people think, I'll tell you what they think. They think it contained uh, the information about a mission that was about to be fulfilled through these judgments. Uh, I think it probably pertained to judgment. I think it related somehow to whatever he roared and why those seven responses came with the thunder, I, I think that might all be related to it. But what it actually said, I do not know. Then, this is what's interesting. Sometimes when we're going through the scriptures and we're following through a section like this, it's a narrative. It's a, it's a historical narrative, though it's never happened. It will happen, and it will follow this order too. But I always look for those little words at the beginning of a sentence to say, oh, this is what's happening. Then, all right, we have all this happening 
with this angel and a loud voice and sounds and trump, uh, you know, voices and things. And then John says, then. So we move in sequence to the next event that's happening right in front of his eyes. What happened in verse number 5? Then the angel who I saw standing on the sea and on the land, that's a colorful guy, right? Lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Who might that be? Jesus, God the Father, God, you could use a lot of terms, because this one created the heavens and the things in it. This one created the earth and all that's in it. This one created the sea and all that's in it. This is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? We say, okay, that was God doing that. Who? Is that the Father? Yes. Is that the Son? Yes. Was that the Holy Spirit? Yes. And we know specifically the Son did, because Colossians 1 tells us so. Nothing was created that was not created by Him. So in this, you can have a right answer in a lot of different ways. Yes, it is God. Yes, it is the Father. Yes, it is the Son. Yes, it is the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, they're all present here at this scene too. And this angel swears by the Creator. And this is a rather interesting phrase to me. Because if God has created everything, does He not have the right to destroy it all? Yes, He does. Everything that God created... I, I don't think he enjoyed this, but I do not have a problem with his rights to destroy it. It all belongs to him. It belongs to him. For whatever reason, our world today, our society today, as it been for almost a hundred years at least, is doing its best to deny that God's the creator. Because they don't want him to own this place. They don't want to acknowledge their accountability to him. They set it up in such a way to deny him of that. This angel says, uh-uh, he's the creator still. And he swears by the one who created it all. And honestly, I don't know how you could swear any higher than that. This isn't pleasant to look at. I'd rather watch Genesis chapter 1 and 2 on a video, wouldn't you? Where God is creating the sun and the moon and the stars and the animals and the plants and the oceans. I would love to see when man was created how the angels all sang for joy. I would love to see those scenes because I think we would sing for joy too. When we see the Creator at work, the praise that's lifted up before Him, the clouds that glorified Him, the hills, the trees that clapped their hands as psalm says the birds that sang praises to his name with their little twerps and tweets and these men who god has created men who were made to honor him and magnify his name he looks down at his creation here in revelation and he sees an obstinate man he sees a man who refuses to acknowledge him who does not sing his praise who when this angel speaks and roars and the thunders go about throughout all of creation and God swears by the Creator who made them, 
God said, I won't delay any longer. That is a potent statement. For this is the God who has made all this. And mankind is standing in the middle of his creation and refuses to repent. Refuses to repent. Before the God who created it all. Time is up. According to this passage, time is up. Now folks, there is a frightful thing when God says the time is up. My little nephew lived with us when he was born and for a couple of years he lived with us. Not me. It was in my parents' house and I was still there uh, as a teenager. And uh, to learn responsibility, he had this way of, uh, maybe you don't know how this works, but delaying everything. Uh, He was the king of procrastination. Uh, Everything was, you know, okay, I'll do it, but you never know what the timeline is with that. And I remember my mom, as his grandmother, would uh, use a little egg timer. And she'd say, I want you to go do this, and I'm going to set the timer. And when it goes off, you better be done. And she'd set that timer. And, of course, you know, that there's kind of a motivation here suddenly to get it done because the timer's tick, 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 tick. The last thing he wants to do is be caught when it goes off. There was only one problem with the whole system. That was the same thing she used when she made cakes and things in the oven. And there was that day when he was in the kitchen and the timer went off. And he panicked because he didn't know what he was supposed to have had done. He's like, what? What? didn't know what to do. And she decided that that was over. She wasn't going to do that anymore. God has a timer, folks. God is a timer. It's ticking. You know, there are those who have a doomsday clock. and They try to tell you how close it is. This world does not control time. God does. It's operating his way, not ours. And I can guarantee you one thing. No matter what might happen to this earth today, if today something happens and the rapture occurs, there's at least 1,007 years left on this earth. Eschatology teaches us that. There is a tribulation, and then there's a millennial reign of Christ. So no matter what, there's at least 1,000 years and seven years after that, or before that, before this earth is done. God controls time. We don't control it. That's his department. But that timer is ticking. And when he says it's up, when he says it's up, what what a thought that is. I take you to Peter again. I've done this several times because it's kind of a correlating passage. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. It starts... really, verse 3 is a good place to start, writing all the way down to verse 7. It keeps going, but I'm just going to do 3 from 7. The fact is that mankind stands in defiance before God and says, oh, this is never going to happen. This is never going to happen. This is never going to happen. That's why they don't like to believe in the book of Revelation as literal. They don't want to believe it's going to happen. And this is the same mentality Peter mentions here. 2 Peter 3.3 Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, 
Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, Peter says, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, yes, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. In other words, God created it all. Keep going. And through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Had God punished this world before? Yes. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Right now, it's reserved for fire. Kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Look at that. It's not as if God didn't warn them. This passage you see here in Revelation chapter 10, when it says that time is up in verse 6, and it says in verse 7, in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants the prophets. Mark that phrase. Many times when people are doing their attempt at reading through the Bible in one year, I say attempt, you know what that means. Many of us get started and then we kind of hit something right around Leviticus, right? And it slows us down and numbers are so tough. And if you make it through those, you've got Deuteronomy waiting for you. And those are usually tough, almost uh, uh, resolution killers. For those who want to try to read through it's hard. And you say, well, if I make it through that, if I haven't given up, I hit the history section, and boy, is that better. Start cruising through history, and you're enjoying that. Wars and kings and people, we know their names, you know, and things like that. And then we come to a book called Job, and we start to feel something. Right? So, ooh, it's a bit of a struggle. You hit the book of Psalms, and what's the only problem with that? It's 150 chapters long. And most people say up to 118, it's okay. 119, that takes three days to read. It's like, whew, that's tough. And then you hit the book of Proverbs. And you see all kinds of interesting, fascinating things. And then, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is, I'll let you fill in the blanks. Some people say, Oh, is that hard. So is that depressing. Oh, is that tough to read. There's all kinds of words that go into that. And then, if you make it through Ecclesiastes, you've got the Song of Solomon. Nobody mentions they read that one. Then what? What if you make it that far? I'll tell you what's next. Prophet, 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 prophet. Prophet, 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 prophet. There's 18, 17 of them. 17 prophets. How many of them are happy tunes? None. None, because you may say, boy, were they in a bad mood. No, they were predictors of judgment. 
And why did they have to do that? Because the people were living in sin, and they refused to acknowledge God's word, and they wouldn't follow in his ways, and judgment came. But it was always told to them, giving them the chance to repent, right? You see it page after page after page. Sometimes it was a future judgment way down the road. Sometimes it was a future judgment just around the corner. But it was judgment and God warned and God warned and God warned and told him what he was going to do. And he did it. Because God is faithful to his word. That is something you and me as a believer can count on and thank the Lord for the prophets. It's a record that God keeps his word. And if God keeps his word in judgment, what do you think he's going to do for you, believer, when he's promised you eternal life and joys forevermore in his presence? He's going to keep his word. He does that. And I find such joy in that. But this is what the writer says in Revelation chapter 10. He says, the time is up because God said so. The prophets had warned. The prophets had warned. They warned. And people mocked them. Then you start into verse number 8. And then, right, so that that little paragraph there was a reminder, God will keep his word. And then, verse 8, the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking to me, says, go take the book that is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. In your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Hmm. Jeremiah once said this. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. David said this in Psalm 19, verse 7, all the way through verse 11. The law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes, it makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey. And the drippings of the honeycomb. Say yes. That's true, isn't it? When you read God's word, does it not feel? If you use the word feel, I don't know what the word is. You get it. You feel a calming about you. You feel a rush of joy. You you feel some security in the words. You're confident they're absolutely true. You read of your Father's love for you. Does that not do you a lot of good? You read it and it's sweet to you. It's sweet to you. You read it. And then it says, Moreover, by them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, 
there is great reward. The writers have written over and over and over about their reaction to the Word of God. What it has said to them. What is their delight in it? Psalmist of chapter number 1 of Psalms. His delight is in the law of the Lord day and night. He can't get enough of it. He's got to pick it up at night before he goes to sleep. He's got to pick it up in the morning. First thought in his mind. I want to read more. It's my delight. It's my delight. It's my delight. What delights you to that extent? What delights you that that's the last thing you want to see or hear or think before you go to sleep? What delights you so much that it's the first thing you want on your mind or in your eyes or in your ears when you wake up in the morning? The news channel? God's Word is a delight, folks. That's what it says. And by it, we're warned. By it, we, we, we are, are, are encouraged and strengthened and all these other things. There are portions of God's Word that cuts you right down to the deepest part, right? It drives a sword, it says, between your soul and your spirit. There are things in God's Word that lifts you up. There are things in God's Word that smashes your pride. There are things in God's Word that are so sweet to eat. How can they be sour to the stomach too? I can tell you what can sour the stomach in a hurry reading these judgments. It's unpleasant. If you knew what John was about to disclose in the rest of this book, it should give you a sour stomach too. I just wonder if that might be what soured him after eating of this word. It was sweet to him because it's God's word. But it was sour to him as well. And maybe that's the result of what that word said. John writes this in verse 10. I took that little book out of the angel's hands and I ate it. In my mouth, in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again. There was a time when Jeremiah said, I'm done. I can't say another prophecy. It's just too much for me. And he says, but you know what? If I keep quiet, my bones are going to burn up inside of me. I can't stop what God told me to do. And here John just read that. When your stomach is discomforted, do you feel like going out and doing something? Usually not. The angel says, John, it's not over. It's not over. And that's true of this judgment. It's not over. A third of the judgments are coming still. It's not over. The worst of the first 67% is nothing compared to what's coming. It's not over. There are terrible things on the horizon. Maybe the bitterness was caused by the result of what he was reading, what he was digesting of this news that was on its way. I don't know that for sure. What would be sweet? 
Anything that our Lord says should be food to us, should be drink to us, should be breath to us, should be life to us. When somebody says, open your Bibles, it ought to excite you. Because you say, yes, it's dinner time. This is our nourishment. This is our cleansing by the washing of the Word. This is where our hope is contained. This is where our promises are given. What's sweeter than this? Then this book in your hand. Everything God has said of judgment, folks, though, He will do. He will do. That's the bitterness that goes to this world. Everything that God has said to us, this church, He will do, too. He will keep every promise. And to us, that's the sweetness of it, isn't it? There's sweetness and bitterness in one and the same little book. <laughs> if this book, if this book resembles just simply the Word of God, it was a message at that time, it was something unsaid, but the results, the responses are fascinating to me. I've made this point all the way through this up to a point right here, and I bring it up one more time. Maybe I'll say 22 more times. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. To some, that's the sweetest thing you could ever put your theme on. Jesus Christ. To the church, we're the bride of Christ. Who should we be thinking about? Jesus Christ. We should be looking forward to seeing Him. Every day, hoping today is the day. I get to see my Savior. Maybe today I get to see Him face to face. This book is saying, from Jesus, I love my church. This world is going to be destroyed in incredible ways. I love my church, Jesus says. I'm glad to be part of that church. Because when we read all the way through how He is the one who came down to this earth He created, that He came down to live among men who rejected Him, who reviled Him, who took Him to a cross and crucified Him, who buried Him because He was dead. Of course, we know He rose again. Of course, we know that He's up with His Father. He conquered death. And we know He's coming again, don't we? We know that's true. And we rejoice in all that. The love He has for us. What He did to take our penalty for sin. What He did to pay the price we couldn't pay. What He did in His mercy and His grace. It's written all over the pages. He loves His church. That's what He's done. To be a recipient of that is an amazing thing to me. But here... He's showing you the price tag of sin. This is the price tag. This is what comes from those who reject Him. This is what comes for those who have no hope. Does that stir your heart? I mean, I'm glad to be saved. I love that. But there's a bitterness inside of me in the sense that there are people alive today who are going to perish in their sins. And what are we going to do about that when we have the good news? 
There are people, if the Lord should take us out here today, who are going to walk through these days. People that might be living next door to you. People who work next to you. People who are in your own family. Relatives in one way or another. You know what I mean. These people who do not know Christ. And we say, well, you know, that's a matter of people's own personal opinions. Folks, you have the good news. You have the good news. And that's the only thing that separates you and me from going through this. Is the good news of Jesus Christ. And are we going to be quiet about it? Are we going to read it and say, it's sweet to me. It's bitter to me. To think of the judgment. But then we stop. Or do you see what John was told? John, it's not over yet. You have a job yet to do. You have prophecy yet to go. Get out there. Do it. That's where we are. That's where we are in these passages. As we read more and more of this, this is not just to fill our curiosity. It's to fill our ambition and our courage and our desire to get out there with a message because this is an ungodly world, folks. Do you know it? It's ungodly. And it's destined for that clock to stop and God's judgment to hit them. And you have the words of life. It's entrusted to you as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. I could go on all day, but I think you got the point. You got the point. For your homework, chapter 11. Right? Read chapter 11. Prepare your heart for that. That's another one of these passages. Boy, I can't wait to get to chapter 20. I can't wait. Heavenly Father, your word is so sweet to us, we know. But there are passages that just sour our stomachs. As we read about these things, Lord, we know they're true because you said so. It brings us back to a look at ourselves. Guess that's exactly what they're designed to be. A look at ourselves. The joy we have, knowing we belong to you. The bitterness in knowing that so many in this world do not. And they are to undergo your wrath. And it's not like they're waiting on that to happen, for Scripture already says they're under the wrath of God right now. Lord, do your work in our hearts as your children. Do your work in our hearts to help us see what you would lead us to do this week. For there must be somebody out there that we can talk to. must be somebody that we can share the good word with. They may mock us and they may turn away from us. But we need to say it. We hope and we pray that you might bring many to come to know you before the day is too late. Use us as your instruments, as your tools, as your children. Just use us, Lord. We're honored when you do. In Jesus' name, amen.